0: Hi, I'm Rick Hess, Director of Education Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. And I'm Pedro Noguera, Dean of the USC Rossi School of Education. Welcome to our podcast, Common Ground, Conversations on Schooling. Two of us
1: often fall on different sides of the big questions in education. But today, we're going to talk through some of the educational issues of the day in search for deeper understanding and sometimes
0: common ground. Today, we're going to talk about parents and education. Uh, Pedro, not too long ago, the National School Board Association sent a letter to the U.S. Attorney General uh, raising concerns about uh, parental threats to school board members. Uh, It turned into a huge brouhaha. It turned out of the 24 incidents that the letter cited, uh, less than a third actually included any actual threats. A lot of them were just otherwise parents being frustrated and rowdy. Uh, The NSBA wound up apologizing for the language it used. Uh, This is currently a a, a topic of national discussion. More generally, we've seen a lot of frustration in different communities with parents showing up angry about masking, about vaccine mandates, about critical race theory, um, about how schools are handling gender issues. I think today the goal is for us to try to talk through some of these concerns and uh, see if we can understand what's going on and what schools are getting right and wrong as they deal with it?
1: Yeah. So, you know, when I think about this stuff, I think about it both as a parent, you know, I, like you, I'm a parent, I have five kids, uh, one of whom's still in school and as a former school board member. And um, so as a parent, I think, I certainly agree with the right of parents to be advocates for their children um, and, and to ensure that the children are getting, you know, a good education and uh, that they're safe and, all the things that we think are, I think, essential. Um, however, what we often see is parents, the advocacy of some parents is, is, is not necessarily uh, good for all kids, right? Um, that is that, uh, and this is where the board has to, I think, step in and figure out, okay, what's in the best interest of everyone, not just one aggrieved, angry parent. Um, as a board member, um, I know that we often had meetings I mean, most of the time, we had very few people at our meetings. Uh, they, they would come out when they were mad about something, often about the budget, something we were cutting, or uh, some other controversy. And um, what I would know is that you couldn't just react to the crowd, because the crowd didn't necessarily represent the majority. It just represented those who were most agitated to come out to a meeting on a Wednesday night and stay late. And um, but at the same time, I think it's important to treat people respectfully and not be dismissive. So I think some of what's going on is a bit of an overreaction. But I do think there has been a lot of um, there have been threats. There have been a lot of rancor, and I think a lot of school board members are saying, you know, is this worth it? I don't even get paid to do this thing, and, <laughs> and they're coming after me at my at my house.
0: Yeah, so I, mean, I think. And I think we've talked about this at some point. Uh, Let me just, you know, I'll put a marker down and I know you're in the same place that, look, violence against anybody, against any public official, against any citizen, is not something we can justify our countenance. That was true on January 6th. Uh, It was certainly my feeling about the riots last summer, whether or not they claim to be for social justice or anything else. And it's certainly the case of how we treat educators and school board officials and all the rest. so, so I think that's out there. But but I, I do wonder, I, I guess I fear that th- what, what was something we can agree is problematic has been used by folks, say the National School Board Association, or some of those who are critical of what these parents are fighting for as a way to delegitimize what I think are real and serious complaints. So... You know, you've got the, you know, like you said, school board elections are usually low turnout. School board meetings are usually boring affairs uh, with the same kind of, you know, people giving the same boring two-minute remarks. And what we've seen is this explosion of interest. And I think it's there for a reason. Um, and, and, And it feels to me like school board, school districts have not been particularly responsive when schools went remote. We certainly saw some virtual school board meetings where the board members were mocking these parents for being, you know, wanting their precious angels in school and not being community-minded. When schools have uh, made decisions on masking, uh, I've certainly, you know, we've certainly read of accounts where they were reasonably dismissive of parents who I thought were concerned about what that actually meant for their kids. And and partly it's weird to me this sense that educational leaders, whether board members or superintendents, um, are being dismissive because it seems like they make their jobs a lot easier if those parents feel heard and part of the conversation. That seems like it works for the district, like it lowers temperatures. Why does it seem that we're in this different place?
1: Yeah, I, I think... Part of what's happening right now is politics, right? Um, you know, Steve Bannon decided school board is a great way to reclaim the house. You know, you get people involved at that level. So there is a political strategy that I think we shouldn't discount. At the same time, I is think Steve, you're right. Steve
0: Bannon's going to be like in jail during that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> but um, it doesn't mean the strategy is not playing out, right? I mean, what I hear from a lot of superintendents is that many of the people coming out of their board meetings are not parents at all. They, they're picked that sometimes they don't even live in the community. They're coming to the meeting um, with anger. Um, I, I talked to Superintendent, you know, that people are angry about mask mandates. And he we said, Well, how many of you have kids? What are your kids saying? And they said, Well, we don't actually have kids here, <laughs> which is yeah. it's hard to take seriously, right? But that doesn't mean there aren't real anger, concerns being registered by parents uh, who do have kids. And I think that's what we've got to make sure that gets taken seriously. As a former board member, the hardest thing for me to do sometimes was to let parents know that even when they're raising an issue they're concerned about, they may not be right, okay? I'll give you an example. I had um, a, a parent who was defending his child who'd gotten in trouble in school. He had tried to set a girl's hair on fire. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we were, it was an expulsion case. And uh, I read it to the parent in the bathroom. I said, look, I'm not speaking to you as a board member that's going to decide about your son's fate. I'm speaking to you as a parent. If you don't address what's happening to your son now, he's going to get into even more trouble. Mm-hmm. And you need, as a parent, to discipline your child. And mm-hmm. um, he didn't want to hear that, but I think he needed to hear it. And mm-hmm. I think that, that sometimes when you're in this role, you've got to tell... Sometimes parents don't know what's best for their kids, truthfully. I see a lot of parents, especially affluent parents, who basically let their parents' kids do what they want, and they end up with over-entitled, spoiled kids who they can't control as
0: teenagers. So, I mean, I, I what, what you're saying actually really resonates with me. I, there's a letter um, back when I did this Letters to Young Ed Reformer book. There's a letter I wrote about, one of the things that has struck me over time is how the relationship between parents and schools has fundamentally changed since I started teaching. Uh, back in the 1990s, I always say, it was really easy, especially in a place like Boston, uh, where I was supervising student teachers. If kids weren't learning, the mindset of the teachers was, yeah, those, are, those kids aren't here to learn. Uh, they're not interested or their families aren't invested. And, you know, that was a huge problem. And one of the great things, I think, about the NCLB era is we flipped that on its head. The expect- but part of this is this enabling of helicopter parenting or this enabling of excuse-making, where it's all on the schools. And at the end of the day, I think, you know, education has gotta be a handshake between parents and schools, between kids and teachers. So I'm with you, full stop. That said, let me, get, let me give you one out of a private school, because this Get-Led system, um, about four years ago, um, I, I remember, I, it, was when I, when I, it was when I first started hearing what we now talk about as critical race theory, but really, bubbling up and starting to get a lot of email and such from people, and I heard I heard from a parent in Chicago who pointed some other parents my way. There was a private school; uh, they were doing lessons on Jim Crow uh, for elementary, for kindergartners. And one of the and the parent reached out because the way they were teaching kindergartners about Jim Crow was they were locking them out of their cubbies and only letting some children get access to cubbies. And this parent was having a tough time because their six-year-old was coming home each day in tears, worried that if he wet his pants, he wasn't going to be allowed to get his spare underpants out of his cubby. And I remember reaching out about this. And, uh, you know, the principal and the teacher told me that they were adapting Southern Poverty Law Center materials. And I'm not a huge fan of the SPLC anyway, but also even the SPLC was talking, what they were pointing to were materials for middle schools they weren't even suggesting that this stuff was appropriate for kid, And, but it was fascinating when I wrote about this, I wrote about, I wrote a uh, pretty big piece in national review on it. When the principal reached out and wrote and wrote back to national review, it wasn't, Hey, this is a problem we're going to work on, or it wasn't, you know, this got out of, it was defending this up and down that that this is uh, we're presenting this at international conferences. Uh, We have consultants helping us with, and, and that seems to me a lot of the mentality. When I hear from parents or teachers who are concerned about some of the stuff that's happening under the banner of CRT, when KIPP schools says work hard, hard work and uh, working hard and being nice are no longer a kosher slogan because they're white supremacist terms. Uh, when I hear school trainings where teachers are being told that independence of thought is a white trait that they should, you know, that is not native to other cultures. And parents are concerned about this. I am constantly struck at when they at when they reach out to me, they're not saying the superintendent said, yeah, you know what, that was a problem. They feel like superintendents are doubling down and defending the stuff, even the stuff that strikes them as goofy. So I know that was really long-winded kind of exposition, but I'm just kind of curious, A, if you think I'm out to lunch on this, and if not, how do you make your sense through some of these tensions?
1: Well, I, I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I think that superintendents, schools are not getting great guidance on how to deal with these sensitive issues, whether it be talking about race or sexuality. right? And we don't really know what, at what age is it appropriate to start raising issues with kids. Uh, we, but we do know kids are aware of racial differences for Mm -hmm. example, very early. Mm -hmm. And they're aware that those differences are not simply um, about colors in the rainbow, that they correlate with who has power, who's beautiful, who's not, um, very early on. Um, and, And so if we don't teach kids about justice and fairness and the importance of hard work and being nice, I'm not against any of those things. The values. <laughs> um, we then open up the opportunity for schools to be places where racism and prejudice spreads, rather than where we are actively confronting it. Um, but I, you know, what age? At what age do we bring up sensitive topics? Um, mm-hmm. And you know, right now uh, we talked about this recently. That, you know, we have a number of kids who are questioning their sexual orientation very early who are declaring themselves to be gender non-binary, who are preferring they, as opposed to he or she as a pronoun. Um, and what's this about? Why so many kids? It wasn't happening when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> and Is this a cultural influence coming from media and elsewhere or is it, is it something else? I don't know the answer to that. I know that on uh, this college campus, it's pervasive. Um, And I'm hearing in the schools uh, that my own daughter goes to that there are a lot of kids now that are are questioning these identities. So how do we respond thoughtfully in ways that don't stigmatize kids, um, but also give parents a chance to continue to influence their kids in ways they think are hopeful. But many, I'll go back, many parents don't know what to do about this either Mm -hmm. um, and don't really know how to respond when the kids um start to assert um that they're not sure about their gender or their sexuality
0: you know you, you and i were talking about some of this with uh some superintendents and district leaders just the other day in terms of the the, the search for common ground kind of mindset and you know one of the things that came up for me is you know i, I what i hear you saying you know what i what i hear a lot of education leaders say is they, they feel like there's got to be some non-negotiables. We've got to make schools that are places that are safe for every child. Um, we, we've got to think about schools as places where kids um, learn to see the world in ways that lets them share our deepest ideals. Um, and I, and that, that all sounds, I think that's a place where we can find lots of agreement. But then I think what happens is parents come in and they say, all right, that, I'm fine with that, but I see you here um, using materials that actually don't seem to do that. This privilege walk actually doesn't seem to make all of the kids feel included. It made my kid feel embarrassed that we have a lot of books in the home or that, you know, that, that his parents are still married when other classmates aren't, and that this was a privilege. And he was like, how come, is that unfair to everybody else that you and, you and my mommy are married? And, you know, or, you know, in Fairfax County, we've recently, I think I'd mentioned to you, we recently had a situation, it looks like, where a parent was complaining about some sexually explicit materials in an elementary school library. Uh, They were in a book that discusses, you know, that it tries to create a broad tapestry around sexuality. But apparently, one of the examples included, I believe, um, a child giving oral sex to an adult. And, it seems reasonable for a parent to have problems with this being in an elementary library. um, But at the same time, to share the larger goal of saying, okay, I'm not for this, um, but I am for an inclusive, welcoming environment. It feels to me like in a lot of these school board meetings, um, when folks reach out to superintendent's offices, that it seems like there's a lot of room here for common ground. that's not getting lost. What, What seems like is, what seem like pretty reasonable complaints about particular practices, instead of superintendents or school board members saying, you're right, by gosh, that's not what we have in mind. That's not what we mean, Um, which would reassure, I think a lot of these concerned parents. Instead, they seem to be telling these parents, don't be a bigot, which seems just the wrong response, unproductive, unprincipled, but all too common.
1: I agree, I I think, Sometimes in their desire to be inclusive and to be, um, you know, acknowledging difference, that they, they don't have real clear guide, guidelines on how to do that, especially with little kids. I mean, you know, showing a child having, you know, um, oral sex with an adult—that's illegal, first of all. So why would you allow that in a in a in a school? And it's clearly inappropriate. Um, so. I don't know where judgment goes sometimes, um, you know, I would say the hardest thing to teach a, a principal or a superintendent is good judgment, uh, discretion, um, you know, how to, uh, uh, you know, make good decisions. And, you know, this is why, you know, who we have teaching our kids, who we have leading our schools is so important uh, because, um, the, you know, they are surrogate parents and they play a critical role in um, not just educating, but preparing kids for life in in our society, it's good in that way that people are interested in what's happening in our schools and uh, are paying attention. Um, I just hope that this um, interest, it it results in greater support for schools, not tearing them down, not tearing down the educators. I mean, the job of a teacher or principal is hard enough than to now have to worry is there going to be some angry parent waiting for me in the parking lot when I get out of school today, or or confronting me in the supermarket, and uh, and and that 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 worries me. I th- I think it's gone over the line in some places, and um, it's not. It goes beyond you know reasonable engagement to threats, and as we said before, threats are I think totally inappropriate.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's right, and I think right now obviously a lot of the energy that's directed at schools and school leaders comes from the right. Um, These are folks who feel like the schools and the educational leaders are lining up on the other side. So I get, you know, um, so it's easy for me being of the right to say, hey, here's what I think. I'm curious, uh, you know, you being my my man of the left, (laughs) uh, I mean, what, if you wanted to give advice to superintendents or school board members on how they could you know, make sure these you know, frustrated conservatives or right-wingers feel like they're heard, feel like specific complaints are getting addressed. What advice would you give that you would still feel like principled and that they're not like just catering to QAnon nuttiness?
1: You know, I, I, I have to say, I, I think, you know, and this is the reason why I agreed to do this with you, the book and now the podcast. Dialogue is important, listening is important. Um, and, and, and that when we listen and when we try to find the common ground and often it's around issues of values, with many people, we can, I think, reduce some of the rancor and tension. I, I, I'll share a story. I was speaking um, at a college in Santa Barbara uh, a few years ago, and I didn't know this, but outside there were angry Trump supporters, protesters. They weren't protesting me. They were protesting something that had gone on at the college, but they were at the (laughs) event. And um, so the organizers invited them inside and said, we have food. Do you guys want to come in? And many of them came inside. So they were in the audience, but I didn't know. And they stayed. And then they were asking questions (laughs) and talking afterwards. And, um, you know, my talk was all about equity and diversity and serving the broad range of college students and what it takes, and we found a lot of common ground. And I didn't even know they were there until afterwards, when the organizers said, "Those were the people I protesting." <laughs> so um, you know that was a surprise, but it it was a really uh, um, a good example that affirms what I I do believe that there's a lot of goodwill out there too, if we can um, identify and tap into it.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean. It's funny. Uh, you know, my advice to these guys is actually not that dissimilar from yours. I'm like, look, do you really I mean, I don't know many superintendents. So when you sit down and talk to them, you're like, do you really believe that you know linear thinking is part of some racist construct? I mean, you teach chemistry, you teach math. These are this is linear thinking. Like and, and, and so, like, why? You know, when, you, when somebody on your team invites a diversity trainer in and they're doing trainings where the materials are denigrating linear thought as some kind of racist construct, why would you stand behind that? I mean, here's an opportunity to show people, no, look, you know, I'm running a big organization. Uh, people sometimes do things that we disapprove of. And I'm going to tell you that's not what I mean by creating an inclusive, welcoming, diverse environment. I I just, you know, because there's always, in any debate, there's always the lunatic fringe. Um, But usually you win in leadership and public policy by getting most of the people to at least be okay with what you're doing, even if they're not in support, because that kind of isolates the lunatic fringe. And what I feel like a lot of these folks have done in district leadership positions is they have driven – The, you know, working, married, family-type parents who usually don't get all exercised about this, they've actually driven them uh, into the arms of, you know, the Steve Bannon wing of the world, uh, because these folks feel like they're getting um, dismissed as bigots for raising what, I don't know, a guy like me seems, you know, pretty, pretty reasonable kinds of concerns.
1: Yeah, I, I think, you know, that's why I think a lot of superintendents need help. Because, I, you know, a lot of times they haven't really thought through what they're doing, why they're doing it, what the impact may be on kids, um, and, and how parents would feel about it. And they need to think that through. Um, and they need to be responsive when they hear concerns. Um, it doesn't mean you necessarily just cater to what parents want because not every again not every parent you know is thinking about the broad interest of children. But um, I think when you shut it down, you set up um, uh, a more um, uh, polarized uh, discussion than it needs to be. And and finding where we can agree, where there's reasonable position, I think is important because as you said, I do think the majority usually. You know, wants to do the right thing, and um, you know when I used to travel the country, that was always affirmed to me. Uh, no matter where I went, that um, most people are pretty decent, pretty reasonable, pretty fair. If you if you approach them that way, um, it bring out the best in them.
0: You know, w- w- one source of uh, expertise, superintendents seem to lean lean on in all this, is. Uh, diversity and equity and inclusion kind of experts and consultants. Um, I mean, you've dealt a lot in this world. Any words of wisdom for folks as far as how they should think about that work, how they should think about who they're bringing into their schools or systems?
1: Yeah, I have thought about a lot. The first thing I would ask is um, suggest is when you bring someone in, ask them for references. Are there places you've worked that uh, we could talk to? because we want evidence that the places you've worked in have gotten better because you were there, right? Um, so that's kind of a bottom line. Second, I would want to know ahead of time, what is the strategy? What are they going to do and why? What are, why are they proposing certain um, uh, methods, certain ways of going about addressing issues? Um, and have they thought through what might be the negative fallout? So for example, a number of districts I know that have done courageous conversations, they've actually made many of the white teachers more angry than they were before coming in. And um, the the consultants didn't think through what would happen um, and how do you bring people back together after the consultant leaves. So I think it's really important for the, the educational leaders who are hiring these folks to be really selective in screening and ask good questions in advance so that they don't create more problems than they need.
0: Yeah. You know, I mean, one thing that struck me for many years is that a lot of the people who do this work, you know, are deeply invested in it. And for those people like me who can be skeptical, it seems, you know, unless they're really good and really disciplined, it seems very easy for them to kind of just dismiss people like me. Uh, or even just dismiss us as bigots, which uh, seems more like a recipe for division than one for healing and, uh, you know, and construction. Yeah,
1: you know, I just uh, earlier this morning I just spoke to a class at USC that's read our book, <laughs> <laughs> and um, th- one of the things they said that they said that they really liked about it is that we weren't simply arguing; <laughs> <laughs> we were trying to work through issues, and I think that approach is what we need a whole lot more of and i uh, i wish we'd see a lot more of it particularly in education
0: well said yeah and i think that's you know the key to kind of you know you want parents to trust that you've got their kids best interest at heart you've got to make sure those parents feel like you're interested in what they care about and if you can't do that maybe this isn't maybe you know maybe you ought to consider alternative lines of work Anyway, all right, well, hey, as always, uh, it's been a pleasure to talk with you, my friend. It's been a a lively conversation and uh, I'll look forward to uh, doing it again soon.
1: All right, great talking to you, Rick.
0: The two of us have much more to say, but we're out of time for today. If you're interested in hearing more, check out our book, A Search for Common Ground, conversations about the toughest questions in K-12 education. Thanks for listening to Common Ground, conversations
1: on schooling, And thanks to our producers, Tracy Shira and Olivia Shaw. You can subscribe to Common Ground on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a review. And feel free to let us know what topics you'd like to see us discuss by sending an email to podcast at agi.org. Thanks for joining. Until next time.